Hi everyone, I'm Aaron Green, head of SAP SuccessFactors for Asia Pacific and Japan, and welcome to the People People Unfiltered podcast. Every episode, I sit down with extraordinary business leaders to discuss all things people experience. I'm really excited to bring today's conversation to you. Anybody who knows me knows just how passionate I am about the topics of diversity and inclusion. And I think I can speak for Liz, our amazing guest that you'll soon hear from, that today's podcast is very much a conversation from the heart. Now, let me introduce Liz McAuliffe, the HR Director at Deloitte Asia Pacific. Liz has an incredible amount of experience in the HR space, with over 15 years of this time spent at Deloitte in both the Australian business and now overseeing the Asia Pacific region. It's my real privilege to welcome Liz to the People People Unfiltered podcast. Hi, Liz. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, maybe if you could give us just a bit of background about yourself and, and about the, the Deloitte organization. Sure. Um, thanks, Aaron. Thanks for the opportunity. It's it's exciting to have this conversation. Um, my name is Liz McAuliffe. I'm the um, HR Director for Deloitte Asia Pacific, uh, which is a relatively new role um, from January this year. I have, however, been with Deloitte for just over 15 years in a large variety of um, HR leadership roles, generalist roles, specialist roles, um, business-facing and internal um, across Australia, uh, Southeast Asia, and, and then now Asia Pacific. So currently based in Singapore, um, and Deloitte Asia Pacific is our regional uh, firm, which came into creation uh, nearly two years ago. We're made up of eight different participating firms, which span the Asia Pacific region, um, about uh, over 60,000 employees. So it's a quite a large organisation, uh, full professional services, everything from audit through to management consulting and, and everything in between. Um, I think at the moment we are the largest um, professional services firm in the world. So lots, lots of challenges. That's amazing. And congratulations on the new job from January. Thank you. So, Thank you. It's exciting. <laughs> It is, and, yeah. All right, so fully controversial question. Right? Okay, so bring it. Caveat bring this, it. this is controversial. <laughs> right now. Uh, one of the struggles that I think a lot of people have with the, the topic of diversity and inclusion is that it often, the conversation starts and ends with the idea of quotas, mm. right? And we typically look at those quotas as the way of, you know, I think in the worst case scenario, uh, ticking the box for some government mandates I think in a better case scenario, it's, you know, employers really looking to understand the the diversity of their workforce and how just how inclusive they might be. But from my perspective, quotas just aren't enough because I don't think it really speaks to where an organization should be driving towards. Um, I'm really curious what your view is on that. Are quotas enough or are there other fundamentals or foundational elements that, that employers need to be looking at today? Mm. Not as controversial as I thought you were going to be, but that's all right. <laughs> I can make it more controversial. Okay, okay, think about that. So, look, I would agree with you. Quotas are not um, the be-all and end-all, but they are important. Um, and, you know, maybe a nicer way to look at it would be targets, right, you know, in, instead of quotas. I think um, there, there needs to be some level of measurement, um, whether it's targets or, or otherwise, so that people have, and leaders primarily, have an understanding that they can communicate down to their teams as to what is it that we're trying to achieve. But the quotas or the targets don't mean anything if there's not a business imperative along with it. Quotas for the sake of quotas, to your point, for a government initiative, that's actually not going to change an organisation. There needs to be clear demonstration of profitability, employee retention, um, leadership progression that comes with 
a diverse nature of an organisation. Um, and I think once leaders understand those other fundamentals, they'll see that actually it's in their interest to do this. Um, you know, we are a huge employer, and as you said, a huge employer of millennial um, uh, um, generation of, of people as well. People want to know that they're working for an organisation that they can see role models in. If they walk into an organisation and the role models of leadership don't look like them, don't sound like them, don't act like them, it's not going to be a natural aspiration for them to stick around and achieve their career goals there. So I think the key is, you, you I personally think you have to have some level of measurement because otherwise there's a lot of talk and not a lot of action. Um, but I think in an ideal world, we'd get to the stage where those targets go away because it's inherent leadership behaviour, but I don't think we're there yet. Yeah, and that's that's a really good way of putting it. And maybe my con my my question wasn't as controversial as I thought. <laughs> so fair fair call out. Um, but but I still think so many organizations and so many um, so many leaders that I talk to they think about diversity and you know this topic of diversity and inclusion as being fairly binary, right? So they look at it from the perspective of ethnicity or race. Uh, they look at it through the lens of gender. And mm. I think if we're lucky, they'll look at it through the lens of age. Uh, you know, mm. more progressive organizations might start looking at diversity in the in the sense of uh, sexual orientation or religion. And you know, I think there's so many facets that go into it. But I I really love what you said, which is we need to start modeling the behavior. We we need to be putting people into the organization that model the the makeup of where we want to be. Um, I often talk about this as the the makeup of our organization needs to reflect the communities that we serve mm, absolutely and very rarely you know are the communities that we serve all one ethnicity one age group one gender mm. one you know one orientation but unfortunately that's just historically how in so many countries we've we've hired it's almost the law of attraction right we, mm. we gravitate towards people who look and sound like us but what we miss out is all of the amazing talent and richness in between. And, and I think that's just a trick that so many organizations are missing today. I I, I would, yeah, no, I, I would agree. And I think ultimately, again, there's got to be the business. People have got to see the business benefit. And I think, you know, diversity ultimately in our organization um, come, you know, what we're trying to achieve is not a, a rainbow of people um, or a rainbow of, you know, ages. Um, we're actually looking to create a diversity of thought because if we have a diversity of thought, we're able to go out to our clients and provide them with solutions or solve their problems for them in a way that makes sense to them their customers, their community as well. If we go out with the same type of people, the same sort of solutions, we're pretty quickly going to become old news and there's there's plenty of other players in the market. But I think to be able to get to the diversity of thought through a, a diverse makeup of your workforce, there's got to be recognition and again, uh, tangible evidence that that does have a positive impact on your organization. And I think that's actually really easy to do because if you look at the marquee projects or successes for an organization, chances are they've been created or solved or delivered through a diverse group of people. So it's about really leveraging that and profiling that and, and educating the business leaders to say, hey, this can be done. And it's not about creating 
I, I think the other thing, it has to be a little bit organic, right? There's there's yeah. nothing worse than when you start kind of putting, you know, demarcations around what people can do what, and we need to have, make sure we've got um, this mix of people in our in our portfolios or this mix of people in our bid proposals. There's got to be a little bit of organic nature around it. But I think it's around educating the leaders to see the benefit of having that diverse workforce. Yeah, and I completely agree with that. I think there's also... It's almost a, a a talent attraction imperative here, and mm. you know, if I just think about what we ourselves are doing as an organization at SAP, uh, you know, we we have specific talent programs that look at cognitive diversity. So where we reach mm. out to uh, people who might be on the the autism spectrum, and we bring them into the organization. Uh, we also look at uh, returning to work parents, so people who have been out of the workforce for a couple of years. Uh, you know, I think. It's kind of up to 10 years uh, and bringing them back in into different kinds of roles. And a lot of that for me speaks to that diversity of thought. It's that mm. diversity of experience, people coming in and challenging uh, the status quo, because mm. I think as we all know, that's kind of how you get organic growth is mm. you have to do something differently, right? Something exactly. has to happen for, for you to grow. Yeah, but I think that, you know, those sort of programs which we do have in a, in a number of countries around, well, not just around Asia-Pacific, but primarily, you know, around Asia-Pacific, those programs play to diversity, but they also expand out to the inclusion um, yeah. part of the strategy as well, right? And I think with that, then, you know, it ties back to what we were talking about before, we have the role modelling, which can then impact our employer branding so that then we attract a more diverse workforce and, and candidates to our recruitment pipeline than we would um, going forward. It's, you know, it's as simple as looking at the collateral and making sure that that, you know, the visual collateral is actually reflective of the people that work at the firm, not just some stock images of a, you know, a traditional workforce as well. So I think there's a, um, a cyclical kind of nature that goes along with this and um, the improvement can be incremental through through making these changes. Yeah, I, I completely agree. You know, it's interesting. I had um, about two weeks ago, somebody in our global organization uh, emailed me and asked kind of what stock photo I use on the background of my PowerPoint presentations. Uh, and I didn't really connect the dots as to what they were doing, but uh, I just said, well, in Asia Pacific, we tend to not use the corporate ones because they're not diverse, right? They don't actually reflect the mm. communities that we serve. So here's the library of the ones that we actually use. Mm. And the reason I bring this up is what, what it triggered for me and just hearing you talk is I'm actually glad that they asked me because yeah. it shows that people are starting to think about the fact that not everything perhaps centers around one geographic part of the world and that the makeup of our workforce is really diverse. And when we look in Asia Pacific, I mean, we are probably one of the most diverse regions in the world. Absolutely. And and it's funny you mentioned that, right? I've had many conversations with global, um, global teams around imagery. Thankfully, I think in the last, you know, sort of probably 18, 24 months, the, the diversity, if you will, um, of the imagery and the collateral and the recognition of the variety um, that exists within Asia Pacific is being very much recognised. So I think you're right. It's, it's the right question to ask. Um, and, but I think the, the whole um, profile and dominance of Asia Pacific is coming to the forefront, which I think makes it even more exciting for global organisations as well. Yeah. So question for you on the, on the inclusivity side. Yeah. And so we've talked a lot about diversity. Uh, you know, when we're dealing with a region as well, diverse as Asia Pacific, <laughs> I 
pun, I suppose, <laughs> slightly intended, uh, but when we were dealing with a region as diverse as Asia Pacific, where there are just so many different cultural norms, and you know, even within countries, there are dramatic cultural differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, how what what's your advice on how how you crack the inclusion nut? Because you know, and I'll just mm-hmm. uh, I'll, I'll put it out there in this way. So in Australia and New Zealand, we have a really strong um, pride at SAP network, you know, which mm. looks after our LGBTQI uh, colleagues and, and allies mm. in many parts of Asia. Um, you know, we've launched it, but it's it's a slower launch. And a lot of that is cultural to an extent mm. and just cultural societal norms. Uh, but I'm curious, you know, from another major global employer, how do you... Mm. You know whether it's the the pride coalitions or whether it's you know religious groups or any any kind of inclusion mm. trying to drive inside of the organization how do you do that in a region as diverse as asia yeah it's it's certainly not uh, you know i'm, I'm not going to give someone a simple answer on on this question at all i think moving from you know somewhere having worked in both australia and new zealand where i would say it's a it's a pretty liberal society when you look at yeah. inclusion i i think that's that's probably you know a, a statement of, of fact. Moving to working across uh, Southeast Asia and, and broader Asia, part of Asia Pacific, where sometimes you know sexual orientation can be not just taboo; it can be illegal, you know, in yeah. some countries, right? So, as an organisation, we've got to really balance the you know not falling foul of the the law of you know the country that we operate in, but also making sure that we are inclusive in practical interactions with our employees. Um, and I think, you know, having worked across Southeast Asia for the last uh, three years prior to this role, what we looked to do was to really start um, involving employees who were interested in whatever it might be. So whether it be religious groups, whether it be sexual orientation, whether it be disabilities, um, whether it be anything, right, even gender inclusion mm-hmm. as well, right? And we sort of said, okay, anything that's going to be successful in the, in the realm of inclusion is not going to be successful if it's either an HR initiative or it's something that management tell us we have to do. So we put it out um, and, you know, I'll give you the example of gender, but it has it has morphed uh, um, and there's a disability example I'm thinking of as well. And we sort of said, look, if you're interested in this, let us know. We'll help connect you with other people across the region who are also interested. Um, tell us, you know, what you want to do. Tell us what you're interested in. Tell us how you want to profile this and so forth. Um, and if it works, great. If it falls flat on its face, that's you know shows that it's not important to our workforce at that point in time. Um, we've had uh, tremendous success with some some areas of inclusion, and some have kind of sort of just you know putted along with with not yeah. not not falling over, but not not making great strides. But that's enough. And I think um, you know that's kind of one way you know I think to build up the. Um, inclusivity of an environment that you work in. The other thing I I think is about um, really making sure that when we are offering benefits to employees, um, regardless of, you know, what the the law says about that in whatever particular country, um, you know, that we are being open as an organisation and recognising that families come in all different shapes and sizes and structures and so forth. And we we can influence that as an organization within our own environment. So it's probably looking at the old, you know, the cliche of what can you can control and what can you influence. Um, yeah. But really making sure, um, and this is, you know, goes across diversity and inclusion and, and probably a lot of our talent initiatives, anything that comes out as an HR thing is never going to get attention. I, I, it's, uh, it's refreshing to hear you say that because <laughs> I, 
Well, look, I think a lot of business leaders look at this as an HR problem. I think HR, in many cases, feels like they need to own it or that they feel that it's a business challenge. But I love, you know, I I kind of back to the the structure or the, the scaffolding you might put around it. It's something where you need to foster the environment where people feel comfortable then creating those groups. Yeah, and I think HR's role is to facilitate it, right? Connecting people, getting buy-in from leadership for events or thought leadership or budgets or whatever it might be, but not to, you've got to do it with them, not to them, I think is probably the. I agree. I've been talking a lot about recently about the role of kind of the modern day HR practitioner as being the custodian of an experience. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. They don't need to own it. They don't need to run the whole thing, but they need to create the environment in which the experience can occur. But I think uh, as an HR practitioner, you've got to recognize that it's not always going to be successful either. And that's okay. That's okay. You know, it, or it may be successful and then it's not, and then it may be again. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, it's it's not always going to be linear. And, you know, that's okay because businesses change daily anyway. Yeah. You know, we have a um, two categories of uh what we, you know, what we would consider millennials or Gen Z, uh, but we call them early talent and young talent. Okay. Now, the, dif- the difference is, I think, I hope I get this right, early talent uh, are people with whom SAP is one of their first professional careers, and I think they have to be under the age of 25. And okay. young talent is anybody that under the age of 30. So what I've learned is I'm neither young nor early out of this. <laughs> <laughs> But what, what's been really amazing, and I have, I also lead a lot of our Australian business uh, and, and our offices, and what's been amazing is that early and young talent team have almost coalesced together and they've created their own group. And they are actually driving a huge amount of the activities and events and the culture that, uh, well, when we're in the office that we have in the office, but even mm-hmm. remotely, they're the ones coming up with incredible suggestions and facilitating it. And it's, you know, to your point, it's it's become organic. It's something that mm. it's now just kind of a part of our DNA because we didn't put structure around it. Mm. And, and it, I think, and that's well, great, right? That's important. And and I completely empathize with you. The average age of our employee base is 35, and that's taking into consideration right through to partners. So mm-hmm. I, I feel well over the average <laughs> on a daily <laughs> basis. But but I think the 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 enthusiasm and the willing to give things a go is far more prolific in that in that space. And what we've what we've had some great success with is kind of going, okay, sure, give it a go. Um, and and see how see how it goes. And we have um, in a, a business I used to look after um, a, what they used to call the analyst action committee. And it was the they had a learning program, they had a, um, a societal program, they had a um, social program, and they put together a budget. And you know they did everything from going to the movies to bringing in speakers to playing sport together to doing you know learning on Excel because no one thought they knew how to use Excel as much as they should. So, <laughs> but they kind of were like, this is what our group of people need, and we could never have come up with that in a million years. But they did it, and it was hugely successful. So I think that that just almost spontaneous allowing people to come up with their ideas and listening to them goes a long way to be inclusive um, regardless of what what that idea may be. I think that's a a great point. And also, you know, it's probably when we think about what the employer or the organization should be doing is, you know, Put, put a bit of money behind it, right? Put yeah. Or put the resource, you know, it doesn't have to be cash, but put the resource behind it and 
trial it out. Let let people succeed, but equally let them fail because mm. they they will feel that their voices are heard and they'll try differently. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, it's it's financial, yep, but if that's not an option, and obviously at the moment for a lot of organisations, that's not an option at all. Sure. But even, you know, leadership time, right? The the junior, junior part of any organisation, one of the things they really want is to spend time with their leadership. So if a leader can give up 20 minutes, half an hour, virtually or face-to-face, depending on which part of the world you're in, and actually spend time with that group, imparting their knowledge, sharing their experiences, mm-hmm. The benefit and the impact of that will be way more than, you know, taking everyone out for a drink. I completely agree. We've started doing, and so, you know, we've always had this culture of coffee corners where a visiting executive might come into a specific office and, you know, we'll put on a morning tea and they'll speak for a half an hour. And I think oftentimes, you know, we learn things, but a lot of times it's people getting kind of a free biscuit or a muffin. and. Uh, but what we've start, what we pivoted to, and it's actually been wildly successful, is this idea, and it's a very Australian phrase, but of chat and choose, where mm-hmm. we um, we will say, here's the executive, and it can be somebody local, global, international, whatever, and they're going to hold a lunch, and it's the first twelve or thirteen people to sign up, get in on it, and oh. now we're doing it virtually, obviously, kind of given the the nature of where we are. Uh, I ho- I hosted one a few weeks ago, and it was fascinating just the number of people in the from all over our business who joined in uh, mm-hmm. and it actually created this little cohort of people now who are like trading this little whatsapp group and they're all talking you know, and it's just this, a really great way to your point of connecting people with their leaders uh, and giving kind of an individual contributor who might not have exposure to a senior leader in the mm-hmm. business it's giving them really direct exposure mm-hmm. to to learn to listen and to also uh, interact in just a really mm. different way. But I think the fair, the benefit is actually mutual, right? I, I know we used to run a program with our interns where um, we'd, a, we'd have a, a session with um, a group of leaders, a group of partners primarily, and, and we used to call it a fireside chat, right? Obviously in Singapore mm-hmm. there was no fireside, but um, <laughs> where, we, where we'd bring the interns in and they could have, you know, an hour and a half with the, with the leaders and they could ask whatever they wanted to ask about being a yeah. partner, about their career experiences, whatever. And it was always a very successful session, but the feedback from the partners was almost as, um, I think, almost if not more impactful than the feedback from the interns, because often the leaders kind of like feel a little bit lonely, right? You know, people won't Mm -hmm. talk to them in the same way as they would with their peers. Um, And the feedback from them were like, this is so great. There's so much we can do. You know, some really interesting ideas came out from those sessions that the leaders were able to take and kind of harness. So I think it's actually a mutually beneficial, you know, mm-hmm. inclusive kind of approach across all levels of the organisation. I completely agree. It's almost that role of, you know, it's the the accident, the accidental uh, impact of mentorship, where the yeah. mentor gets as much out of it as the mentee does. Exactly right. Yeah, spot on. Yeah. Spot on. All right, Liz, uh, last question for you. Uh, Okay. So I want to understand from your perspective how an organization and people listening in to to this podcast make diversity and inclusion real in their organizations. Uh, You know, what are the the starting steps or the first few steps that that somebody really needs to start taking or what's the foundation they need to put in place to make D&I a a, a pillar of the business and not... uh, not a quota, not a checklist, not something that's nice to have, but a real imperative in the business. Yeah. So 
I think they need to understand why they're doing it. So mm. to your point, it's not a bolt-on. It's not just something that you can tick a box and fill in a survey and say we've, we've achieved that. There's got to be a real business benefit to making diversity and inclusion a, a core part of your business. What that benefit is will look different for, for every business. So I, I would say the first thing you've got to under do is you've got to do is understand your own business. Understand your own business's strategy, your vision, what are the challenges, what are the gaps, what are the hot spots, and work out, okay, what what whatever it is that you're trying to achieve, how could being more diverse and inclusive as an employer contribute to that in a positive way? Um, and it could be, you know, the answer to that question will will differ depending on which which organization, which country, which role that you work in. So I think that's kind of having a very you know, as an HR practitioner, having a very comprehensive understanding of your own business is critical. Um, yep. Because if you don't, um, then you you will just be providing a, a, a lip service to to this, and it'll be a, an HR initiative. Um, once you've got that understanding, I think it's about really then getting an understanding of how committed are your leadership to this. And again, that will vary, and there will be some leaders who will be front and center, leading the charge, and you'll be running to chase and, and catch up. Them and there will be some who will be reluctant, and often the reluctance comes from a lack of understanding or a lack of um, personal connection to how that diversity and inclusion could impact them or could impact their business. Um, and again, it's it's about taking the time, but it's it's very much around co-creation and and something I said earlier, it's doing it with them, not doing it to them. Um, because if you do it to them, they're not going to buy into it and they're not going to commit and they're not actually going to help. Um, but if you do it with them and get them to help co-create whatever the, the strategy, whatever the solutions, whatever the um, the outcomes are that you're looking with, then you'll get the buy-in and actually then you'll get a better understanding of the business and what diversity and inclusion can mean to that organisation. You make it sound so incredibly simple, uh, but there's yeah. <laughs> so much depth. That, that it's right? not. <laughs> well, but it's it's the why. So it's understanding your business model, right, and and where you're going. It's the, the commitment from leaders, and then it's that co-creation both with leaders and with employees, and yeah. and, and maybe know. even clients and communities, right? So depending yeah. on the nature of your business, um, and depending on what diversity or inclusive um, priority you've got out of your strategy. It could be working with clients of yours or suppliers, depending on the type of organisation you are, and your local community as well. There's such a wide variety of opportunities to be both diverse and inclusive that don't just have to be, well, we don't have enough women in our business. Um, it can be far broader um, and far more impactful than that. Yeah. Well, and, you know, whether you're whether it has a commercial impact or, you know, if you're in the public sector or the non-profit sector, it can have a material impact in you know, the outcomes that you produce for, Absolutely. Your, for your clients. So, Liz, it has been such a pleasure and I've, I've learned so much from you today. Thank you. It, it's been really, again, a huge pleasure. It's been fun. It's been yeah. fun. <laughs> less painful than you thought, hopefully. Totally less painful. <laughs> but lots of fun. No, thank you for the opportunity. I think, um, you know, it's it's exciting to have conversations like this. And I think, you know, the virtual world that we're in at the moment should hopefully make um, make the message go far. I, I hope so, too. So with that, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks. <laughs>